Is this the real life or is this just a fictional reality? Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Fictional Reality. Now this is going to be episode 3 in the release schedule but 5 in the order of recording which means you will hear a little bit of achronism um, coming forward. That's just due to me being a strange time traveler and I like to do things to shake things up a little bit. So, uh, this week I have a wonderful guest by the name of Rita from Post Curious. She has just released a epic looking game called The Emerald Fra- Flame. The Emerald Flame, it's a narrative puzzle tabletop adventure extraordinaire. There's puzzles, there's beautiful artwork, there's a mythical story about an alchemist and a comet and Oh, it's very cool. And we have a pretty cool conversation about it. We talk about narrative and puzzle design, uh, simplicity and complexity, how to engage players, and she, of course, shares a few little tips and tricks and moments of insight along the way. It's a, it's a good little episode. Without much further ado, let's just crack right into it. Thank you very much. Alrighty. Rita, thank you for coming on the show. Another episode of Fictional Reality, where I speak to experienced designers about how they craft experiences for people. Uh, you're a puzzle narrative designer. You have just created something called the Emerald Flame. It's gone bonanza on Kickstarter. You have been marketing this for ages. You've been tantalizing us with puzzles online. You have a really unique artistic style, um, which is super eye-catching. Uh, and the Kickstarter is appropriately going successfully. So for anyone who is watching or listening, there's a link to it in the bio. Um, check it out. It's a beautiful piece of work in an artistic way, but it's also a narrative puzzle adventure, uh, which is really what tweaked my curiosity, um, is the idea of folding in a narrative into the Emerald Flame, like that it's very narratively guided by the looks of things. Can you tell us a bit about what what is the narrative of the Emerald Flame? Sure. Uh, so the narrative of the Emerald Flame revolves around the story of an alchemist in the 1400s. And basically her relationship with a friend of hers and this sort of... Uh, political unrest at the time with the church and trying to create, um, find, basically find ingredients for a mysterious potion and put that together in order to (laughs) create something very powerful that might change the world. That might help. Very cool. Yeah. It's got these great elements of there's a mythical element to it. Um, and I feel like the world of this narrative is, perfectly suited to puzzles now the player themselves is involved in the narrative they're part of um how do you say is it the 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 koshe society Mm -hmm. so the player is basically commissioned by the koshe society as a historical expert uh, to examine these documents and objects that they found and try to find the connections between them figure out what they mean and basically you submit your solutions to them and they will help you move on into the next part of the game so this is very cool um when you look at the kickstarter there's so much stuff so many things to play with so many pieces of paper and little puzzle things where did all of this begin where was what was the the first uh the first step on this journey yeah yeah (laughs) um so i think there's sort of two two steps um, that came together. And one of them, I was literally just looking up undeciphered 
ciphers on Wikipedia. And one of them was in the Voynich manuscript, which <laughs> is a really cool thing. And if you have never seen it, go look it up right now. Mm-hmm. The entire thing is available online. Um, but it's basically this crazy book full of several folios that have all these plant drawings and astronomical diagrams, all kinds of, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and it turned out that at some point it had belonged um, to someone in Prague. And it also turned out that there's a lot of uh, sort of alchemical related history in Prague. So I started digging into that. And that's kind of basically that's developed into, into what it is now. And it's gone through a few different versions. Um, inspired by various things. Um, one of the things actually that drew me to Prague was the astronomical clock. So for a while the game was centered around that, but it ended up um, being more about the alchemist. Mm. What is the astronomical clock? Um, it's a clock in the middle of the old uh, town square and it shows time in, I'm not sure how many ways, maybe seven or something like that it's got like the old uh gregorian calendar it's got like regular time it has the date it's got like um the the horoscope that we're currently in and then it's got like a sun time and a moon phase it's just it's a crazy clock also if you haven't seen it just google it right now it looks (laughs) awesome that is cool i did not know about this crazy clock that can do all these different things as a time traveler myself i'm very interested in clocks from the uh <laughs> from the 20th century um i could go on a big tangent about that about all the different yeah. calendars and uh the interesting thing how we all sort of live second to second but we live <laughs> in these like contextual frameworks of time and anyway it doesn't matter uh so you when was this when did you first you, I know you had the tale of Ord. That was your your initial. You kickstarted mm-hmm. that. I did not kickstart that actually. Um, uh-huh. It was it was the first game, but I didn't do a Kickstarter for it. And that was finished in May of um, twenty eighteen. Was when mm-hmm. I released it. So I've pretty much been working on this since I finished that game. Right. And when you say working on it you like have done pretty much everything except physically cut out the acrylic yourself. Is that correct? Like <laughs> you've, you've done all the artwork, all of the designing work. Um, I, I'm sure other people have helped along the way, but let's talk a little bit about your process. Um, you seem to be a skilled artist where, how long have you been doing that? How has that um, come to be? Art? Yeah. Um, that's probably my oldest skill, really. I wanted to be an artist since I was like three years old. (laughs) Um, so I've been doing art for a really long time, but sort of on and off. Um, like at some point uh, in high school, I did a lot of painting, but never did watercolor. I was actually terrible at watercolor, interestingly enough. (laughs) Um, and this whole game is illustrated in, in watercolor. Uh, and yeah, I actually used to want to be an illustrator and I ended up going to school for furniture design. So started working in three dimensions instead and kind of got into the more puzzly 
aspect of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, it was, I guess, maybe it was fall of that year when, it, when, it, when I started working on this that I did Inktober, which for anyone who doesn't know, uh, illustrators will often uh, post a drawing a day during the month of October. And at the time I was like, you know, I think this will be good. I should practice drawing and like, it'll be nice to get back into it. And I actually really enjoyed it. And then I decided to uh, illustrate the game in, in the watercolors that I was just sort of starting to, um, to get into at the time. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's actually been one of my favorite things about working on this game is, you know, because sometimes you spend so much time figuring out puzzles and like breaking your brain on mm-hmm. things and then you just sit down and like draw some flowers and <laughs> it's, a, it's a good, it's a good counterpoint. <laughs> you secretly like uh, put in a therapeutic exercise within a, a very confusing type framework there of uh, yeah. drawing flowers and, and they look lovely um what was i gonna say so you have something that really caught my eye the first thing that caught my eye from post curious was i can't even remember how i started following you i think it was just on instagram just like through recommendations and you have a slightly art deco-y design and i thought it was cool but the first thing that really caught my eye was a puzzle that was like a ring of circles and they had they were different colored circles and they overlapped on oh, each yeah. other mm-hmm. um and so uh, and i just you know i'm not a huge uh puzzle player myself but i had not really seen a puzzle like that before one where it was very like just image based and i really enjoyed that it was so it was just it, it contained so few um letters and words on it and then there was another one which i still i didn't solve and i threw it to my escape room friends and we've had a bit of trouble with it um but it was it was a bit more i think it was was it the octagon one (laughs) it it might have been the octagon there was i just remember there was an overlap of like a wheel and a chair and it i think it implied the answer was like a wheelchair and is that the answer is it is it a wheelchair meant to well, it's not the answer. I mean, it's it's that it's the answer to that part of of the puzzle. Right, right. It's a tenth of yeah. the answer or whatever. Um, and I was just like hooked on that concept, and I just loved it. I thought, wow, this is so cool. I've never really seen like it's just very visually simple, but there's like some nice complexity to it. Um, how did you arrive? Start maybe start with this specific puzzle. How did you come up with this concept? Um, yeah, how did you come up with the concept for those two specific puzzles? Uh, you know, I actually just like wrote a blog post about those particular puzzles. Cool. Um, and basically, like this is true for a lot of the puzzles in the Emerald Flame. A lot of them were inspired by alchemical drawings that I'd just found on the internet, mm. and you know, they're full of words and symbols that I don't know the meaning of. So it was sort of an exercise in, well, this looks interesting. How, what can I make out of these shapes that mm. could be a puzzle? And that's kind of, I mean, I think that happens a lot in my process where I'll just see things and I'm like, this could be a puzzle. 
Absolutely. Um, and so for those particular ones, it was actually, there was one um, drawing and it was, I don't actually know what it was, but underneath that drawing, there were three other teeny drawings that were really blurry because it was not a very high resolution uh, picture. Um, so I zoomed in on those and like, you could kind of just make out some shapes, but you couldn't even make out like what letters were there. It was so blurry. Mm. Um, and so I just kind of took those shapes and drew them on a piece of paper and started seeing what I could come up with. And one of them had, um, it kind of looked like it had two sides that then could combine into one thing that was in between them. Right. So the wheelchair puzzle that you're describing uh, also has words with words between them and the between words are the combination of the wheel and the chair. Mm. So that was, that was the origin of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was very ingenious and I'll admit it probably... It's a small thing, but that sold me on the Emerald Flame. Like I've then clicked through, um, I was like, who made this? Who made this puzzle? And then I found your website and then I found your blog, which <laughs> is just like insanely, like you do a lot of work. You're a, I don't know if you have this term over there, but it's a term of endearment, a workhorse. Um, we, we, we call them workaholics. Workah really. <laughs> right. I mean, we're, we're course too, but I think you need your workahole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Honestly, I never knew how long it would take to write blog posts until I started it. <laughs> it's so crazy. I have, I have a newfound respect for people who write a lot of posts. Yeah. Well, you've got a whole post on there on glue. Um, glue is so great to talk about. <laughs> I love talking about glue. Why? What's your favorite glue? My favorite glue is, um, it's called Zappagap. Mm -hmm. And it's basically like a super glue, but it's just the best super glue that you've ever tried. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, as someone who has used glue in a lot of different situations, oh, you would have worked with a lot of glue in furniture design? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I used to be in um, guitar and instrument restoration. So mm. it's... A lot of glue there too. A lot of glue. And very important that you know the differences between glue and timber and humidity and how glues age and how they dry and flexibility and all this sorts of thing. Um, yeah. So I was like <laughs> well accustomed to glue. And then I shifted from timber to paper and sort of took my mentality to how I worked with timber to paper. And like, oh, paper is like, like it is a very thin form of timber and mm -hmm. you can use it in some similar ways you can't fold timber but you can fold paper so they have these differences but glue came up again as this like super important thing oh it's okay if you have people in the background i'll blur them out um it's and then yeah glue became important yet again and i was like oh this is actually a whole different world of things because now the glue ruins the paper if i want it to do anyway you have a passion for what you do and uh, that's quite clear through your blog posts which are um, super informative and I'm going to link that down in the, uh, in the description beneath us in the show notes for anyone listening, uh, go check out reader's blog because you, you seem to keep it pretty updated. You've updated it pretty regularly every month for the past, what, 18 months. 
a year or so? I don't know if it's, I I have no idea how long it's been. I've been trying to do two posts a month, but yeah. (laughs) I know it's not easy. And I always go into it thinking, oh yeah, I'll just like put something down. It doesn't often work out that way. No. It like oh think about I mean about for me it's like when it when I finally have an idea then I just spill out the whole thing mm-hmm. all of a sudden um like sometimes I'm planning on working on something else and then I just start thinking about a topic I'm like I guess I could write about this and then I just write for like an hour <laughs> Um and so you run your website is, are you doing anything else other than the Emerald Flame through Post Curious at the moment, or has just all your attention been on Emerald Flame? It's all been on Emerald Flame for the most part. I have a couple projects that I'm just barely starting on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very excited about those, but they're in their seed phases right now. Right. Cool. Well, I will, I'm going to go into your sort of design process for the Emerald Flame in just a second, but... Just um, give us a bit of a rundown. Outside of Post Curious, you work a full-time job as well. Is that right? Um, yes, at the moment. <laughs> uh, working from home at the moment as we've all been inside. Mm, cool. And so in between, after, before work, you then have been creating this puzzle for the past, since 2018, so two years. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the sort of the design process and how, cause I'm really interested. Some, a limitation of mine is sort of getting things made, outsourcing things, um, getting things laser cut, uh, adding components to my puzzles that I can't physically do myself or that have to be done at scale. So you've come up, you've found this Voynich manuscript. It's inspired you and you've started creating this, this tale. Um, Run me through the process of how you of how you started putting the emerald flame together. So you're inspired by the narrative. Where what what do the puzzles do? How do the puzzles serve what you're trying to do? And how do they even come into the thing? Why not just make your own Voynich man, manuscript? Why make a, a specific puzzle adventure? Well, I think the question is why make it the Voynich manuscript rather than just a puzzle adventure. (laughs) (laughs) It's the opposite question. Right. Um, Well, I I started by doing a lot of research just about um, the location, the time period, and tried to like find details that I thought were interesting that I could maybe incorporate into the story and kind of work the puzzles around that. Um, And the story you know, was pretty malleable. It changed a lot as it went along, depending on what made more sense uh, with the puzzles as they evolved. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I landed on this, which is basically um, you're trying to figure out these ingredients that are needed to use for this potion. Hmm. And there's also a strange comet that's involved in uh, consuming the potion so mm. you also have to find out some information about this comet and I won't say too much more about it because I don't want to spoil <laughs> the surprise for everyone mm-hmm. um, but yeah a lot of the puzzles developed just from the research that I found uh, whether it was information or pictures and um, I also like using maps a lot 
So there's a big uh, map, map of Prague in there, and there's also a map of Prague Castle, which is where some of this action takes place. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did go on a trip there, so I also took a lot of reference photos and stuff and uh, tried to work off of those and basically just use the elements that I found to be interesting about the city uh, in, and incorporate those into puzzles. And there's definitely like some historical um, elements to it, but it's sort of like a fantasy history where you know right. you don't you don't necessarily really know which of these things actually happened or not. And it's 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 kind of fun to work on it that way because there are also like really local legends that <laughs> are you know probably didn't really happen but are just you know, interesting to, to read about. Um, like the astronomical clock, actually, one of the reasons why I thought it was so interesting was that there was a legend that the person who first constructed it um, was then, like, blinded by some minions of the ruler at the time because they didn't want them to go build as nice of a clock in any other city because they wanted it to only be in Prague. Um, and then, and then the, this uh, clockmaker in revenge like broke the clock and then it wasn't repaired for another hundred years or something like that. I mean, that's like the coolest story, right? <laughs> that's very cool. And very typical of like a, pow like a greedy power of like, this clock you've made is beautiful. Pity if you were to do it anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, ah, I had a very pertinent and accurate question to ask you based on everything you just said. Uh, and it has completely flown out of my head, which is fine. Uh, that's completely okay. So... How... So something that has come up on this podcast, oh, that's what I was going to say. This, um, what you just spoke to about um, sort of incorporating history in a sort of subtle-ish way. Uh, that is actually something I was interested, I created fictional reality to sort of speak to. Um, is that, you know, we've, we have virtual reality and augmented reality, but there are things called fictional realities, which I think the first instance I saw of one was, Dan was in the Da Vinci Code with Dan Brown, where he sort of took these real things, real historical artifacts that you could interact with in the real world, and then overlaid this sort of narrative onto them that took them into this sort of, yeah, this fictional reality where it's like, oh, imagine if it was pointing due east toward this other thing and so on. Um, and so as a result, like, I love that as a, when I was younger and have loved that concept and try and incorporate that sort of thing in, into what I do. So it's awesome to hear it, you know, it pops up again when I talk to these narrative puzzle designers, such as yourselves who are interested in blurring these lines um, between the fictional and the reality. And funnily enough, in my experience, the more you look into it, the more you find pieces of reality that don't really make sense. Like the Voynich manuscript or, um, or you've probably seen the, what's it, the Serafina? I think I'm saying that wrong, the Serafina Codex. There's this. I don't know if I'm familiar with that one. It's, um, it's similar to the Voynich oh, Manuscript. Oh, wait, yes, yes, I, I, okay. 
I yeah, yeah. I think it was it was made pretty recently. The author is still alive, but yeah, it's basically aliens, and it's all written in this alien language, but no one can decode it, sort of thing. Um, there are these strange examples of things in the real world, and I feel like these puzzles and narratives they sort of they can remind us that the difference between fiction and reality usually can be pretty thin, and uh, and it can be hard to tell the tell the difference between the two sometimes but I'm getting off topic. So you have created this puzzle adventure and now you're, you've, the puzzles are helping facilitate the story and the story is working in with the puzzles. Now you're into the physical manufacture of the prototype. Mm -hmm. You have what looks like in, um, from the Kickstarter page, there's this cool acrylic-y type uh, it looks like acrylic. I could be wrong. It's transparent. Uh, it looks like glass type rotating thingy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really interested in, w without obviously giving too many spoilers away, what is that? But also, how did that come from an idea in your head to something that became an element in the Kickstarter? So it's inspired by an astrolabe and which is an astronomical uh, instrument to uh, for navigating basically um but uh, a much more complicated one and actually practically useful whereas this will not help you navigate anything um but I, the just the the shapes of everything looked so beautiful that i wanted to make something that was um basically its own kind of astronomical instrument uh, that that looked kind of like that. So, without saying too much more about it, that is mm. <laughs> that is cool. what its purpose is, and that is what it is. <laughs> and how did you? Um, so, it's it's a laser cut thing. How did you go about getting that made physically? Yeah, a lot of the parts, um, a bunch of the parts in the game are laser cut, and. Ultimately, that's just, it's kind of an easy way for me to prototype things, mm -hmm. um, even though I do not have one myself, but, you know, I can send out parts to get cut. And it's, you know, it's easy enough to just draw some graphics, because if you're trying to make something that's three-dimensional or, you know, made of wood or something like that, it's going to be a lot harder to find another way to make that happen. And particularly with something that was such a complicated shape. Mm. Uh, there wasn't really a whole lot of options. I actually started prototyping. The very first time I tried to make that object, I cut that shape out of paper. <laughs> and then it became immediately clear that it could not be opaque uh, <laughs> because it would just be, it was like you couldn't really solve the puzzle unless you could see through it easily enough. Right. Um, so then I tried like printing it on plastic, but it just didn't really have the same effect and the acrylic came out really nice, I think. Yeah, it looks, it looks very whimsical, mystical um, and ye old worldy. So you have a whole bunch of physical components. You have created the puzzles and you've um, interspersed the story. Uh, oh, and just out of curiosity, is the story something that is written like how do you deliver the story or if you can again don't give too much away but how is the story delivered to the player it's basically delivered through letters 
So right. you have the puzzles in front of you. The puzzles have, you know, most of them have their own little clue. Um, but they are objects that this alchemist was accumulating and uh, she herself was trying to solve. So you're sort of putting yourself uh, in her shoes and trying to figure out the things that she was trying to figure out. Um, and meanwhile, you're reading her correspondence uh, with her friend, detailing her adventures of trying to find these items and mm. what she thinks that they might mean. And those are, you know, to, to help clue you in a little bit on how to figure them out. Ah, cool. And then within that correspondence is this sort of political unrest and a, a larger narrative about what's happening at the time. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a huge um, aspect of it. I think it's a little more focused on, like, the characters themselves. Um, but it's definitely a driving force in the narrative. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, like I said, a lot of the stuff happens in the castle. And in the middle of that castle is a big church. Um, right. So there was a lot happening within the church at the time. And different factions splitting off. Um, so just a lot of conflict in that sense. And it's, you know, it's kind of in, in the background, but it's definitely important to what happens in the story. Right, right. Cool. So now we have, you've got your story down, you've got your puzzles down, you have your prototypes built. When do you start playtesting and what does the playtesting journey sort of look like? Um, yeah, when do you start playtesting? We'll start there. Um, so I started, so I usually test out individual puzzles before I really put everything together. Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes it just means like I make a sketch on a piece of paper and give it to somebody and I'm like, okay, try to, try to solve this. Mm. So I'll usually do that at least a couple times, uh, with every puzzle if it's feasible, um, before I put them all together and, it takes a while before I actually really get the whole thing to a tester because I want to get it to a point where I have a good amount of it figured out um, before, you know, because I don't want to be making like as many changes in the very first round, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, however, what happened with both Tale of Ward and uh, with this game after I handed off the first chapter to my first uh, tester, who is always my first tester now because he just gives me really valuable feedback um, <laughs> and is also able to tackle <laughs> uh, puzzles <laughs> in the rawest form. And it's not easy to do that because they always start out being harder than you think they're going to be. Um, totally. Yeah. So when he took a first pass at the first chapter and then I was like, oh, I see. Here are all the big problems with this. So then it kind of completely, you know, rearranged where a lot of the things were sitting. Mm. Um, and kind of in this particular case, I had some things planned for like chapter one and chapter two. So I ended up totally mashing them both together. Mm. Um, and yeah, so once I, I try to iterate between every play test just based on whatever feedback I'm getting mm -hmm. and once I get it to a point where the puzzle is like pretty good and by that I mean people can solve it without really needing help 
um, or, or at least it's like getting close to that point where all I really need to do is like smaller tweaks. Mm. Um, then I started doing the, the final artwork for it because it's, it does make a really big difference what the actual visuals look like. And especially in the puzzles in this game, because a lot of them are really visual. And I know that sometimes little details can totally throw you off of something. So yeah. I wanted to make sure that like it would be well tested with the final artwork so that there wouldn't be anything confusing for people. Um, so yeah, and then once once that was kind of getting done, it was comes down to smaller tweaks where it was just like, oh, I have to change this color or I need to change the wording in this clue because somebody got tripped up like mm. on this one particular word and then it just completely threw them off track. So I don't want mm. that to happen. So let me try and figure out how I can reword it so it's not going to be confusing. So <laughs> things like that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, the thing that comes to me through doing this for a couple of years is you can't not play test the puzzle, no matter how simple oh, yeah. it is, no matter how good you think you are at making a puzzle that anyone can play. Um, you just can't not play test. No one is so smart that they can think outside their own sort of way of looking at the world and play testers are awesome at showing you things that you could never have thought of in terms of interpretation of, of how you make puzzles and experiences. How long does, is that something that you do from the very beginning? It sounds like it, you play test as you design and create and it's. Um, not really. I think I started play testing in the fall. So actually the game was like getting close to being done by that point. We say um, fall. what month is that? Uh, I think I started in like maybe October yeah right or, or I don't know somewhere around there yeah uh, right. anyways but yeah so I'd, I'd already been working on it for like almost yeah for like a year at least before mm -hmm. that so there was there was a lot of like writing and puzzle development and, and iteration before I even got it to anyone to play test and then after the first play test I took like another month to change up a bunch of stuff mm. and then and then started uh then i did a lot of play testing within like three months i was there were some weeks where i was doing a play test like every other day that's awesome you you have a good community you have a i guess people interested in in sitting and working out your games yeah i've got a good good number of puzzle friends so nice <laughs> and, and after after they were took some passes at it then i gave it to some people that had a little bit less puzzle experience mm -hmm. uh, just to kind of see how it would be from that end of things so that they, they wouldn't be too challenging uh, mm. for somebody who wasn't as experienced uh, with these types of games in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so that also gave me a lot of valuable feedback and trying to adjust it in a way that wouldn't make it too easy for people, but would still make sense to somebody that, who was maybe more of a beginner. Yeah. And that's, that's important to me as well. Like my position in the world is I would love to make, you know, puzzle experiences for people who aren't, um, avid, avid puzzlers. Cause you know, that's who I am. I'm, I enjoy, despite being called the puzzle maker, I'm not a huge, um, when I buy experiences, I like being able to play them and not having that frustration of like, I never would have solved that or finding out that, 
I had to know all of this like information prior. Um, that's just like, well, I just didn't get that education. So then I miss out on the fun of the puzzle. Uh, and so playtesting with people who don't necessarily play a lot of puzzles is, is like the best. I love it. Um, I take my, I like to take my puzzles. I have a few friends who, um, I used to say, Hey, would you mind playing my puzzle and like letting me know what you think? And then they just would never get around to it. They didn't want to. And I discovered the trick was to say, um, Hey, I think there's something wrong with this. Can you find what is wrong with it? And then like, they would get back to me instantly. Like here is everything that's wrong with it. And it's like, thank you very much. So interesting. Yeah. And I I was talking about this yesterday to some, to another person who was on the show, um, that people love to help. And if they think they can help, um, then they will. And add on top of that, people love to know, you know, be smart, Mm -hmm. which reminds me of a really popular, like some, a philosophy now that I go by when making my puzzles because I went down the wrong way with this, which was, um, a good puzzle makes the player feel smart. Whereas a poorly designed puzzle makes the um, puzzle designer feel smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I would hope that a good puzzle would also make the designer feel smart. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just by, no, by but I, I get it. I totally yeah. get it. There's, there's definitely a certain inclination to make difficult puzzles. And I think I had, uh, I felt more strongly about that before but like once you really see people playing, you want them to have fun. So you don't want to make it frustrating. It's mm. just like, what's the point of doing it then? Um, and sometimes that just means making it a little bit easier. But the truth is like easier doesn't necessarily mean easier. It just means better designed, more comprehensive to a person. Yeah. So like because in some cases you could just you know throw something in front of somebody and be like okay solve this and it has no information or no instructions or nothing really to kind of pull on Mm -hmm. and so it's very easy to just look at it and be like i don't know what i'm supposed to do here and then you just walk away and because there's there's nothing there's nothing to grab onto and there's nothing sadder than walking away from a puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have experienced that recently with something I was playing and uh, I was just, um, me and my partner were racking our heads over it and looking at it from all these different angles. And we went, fine, we'll get the, we'll take the clue. And we looked at the clue and the clue was, you need to look this up on Google. And it's just oh, no. like, there was nothing to imply in my opinion, that this was a game to be played in conjunction with looking up on a computer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, a simple, like just, just knowing that going in that, you know, use, use clues, use your wits and savvy or some instruction as to who I was in the game and my relationship to the puzzle that, you know, only through getting the clues did we realize, Oh, okay. We're pretending to be, detectives in the real world and we have to use all of the resources around us the puzzle mm-hmm. is not self-contained purely within right. this this thing and it it was just one of those things that it was frustrating to find that out it's like oh because you then feel like i if i hadn't known that i would have gotten it and now it's just sort of like 
the secret answer was actually just a, a bit of a, a slap or a bit of a trick. Yeah. And I, I think that's an awesome quote and probably I'll try and make it the title of this episode, which is easier just sort of means better design. Players bring their own difficulty to puzzles sometimes. Like, and I, I've found a, a really useful when designing puzzles, I sort of pivoted away from making riddles to now my, they're just instructions like go here, do this, do this and try and find the answer. And then so people, and I used to think that would be too easy. People like, I don't want to be told what to do, but actually they sort of do. And it's like, Oh, if I just find what this means and find what this means, then I'll find, you know, what the answer is. And through playtesting, discovered that people go, hey, I, I solved it. Mm-hmm. In the same way that you might say after you've followed the instructions to build a piece of Ikea furniture that you solved the furniture. It's like, yeah, you followed the instructions and you did what they told you and you built a piece of furniture and it was very satisfying. Well, I don't know if I 100% agree with that because uh, I, I usually don't necessarily love instruction puzzles but i think it really depends on the puzzle and it depends on the context right because with a lot of puzzles part of it is figuring out what you're supposed to do and once you figure that out that's like a really nice aha moment because you you figured out something that you're not being told like there's certain puzzles where you're told the rules and the puzzle is using those rules to solve the problem so like you know, like a crossword or a Sudoku or a logic puzzle. Mm. Like a logic puzzle doesn't usually have an aha moment. You're just trying to piece together this information and figure out how to extract actually what you need from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely a lot of, you know, a lot you can do with the ahas of figuring out how two things go together or like what you're supposed to do. Um, but it doesn't mean that it has to be totally opaque. Like mm. there are, you know, like I was saying, there are some puzzles that have no instructions and you look at it, you don't know what to do. Um, but there's a way to give instruction without necessarily giving like actual step-by-step instructions. Right. right? Um, and I try to do that a, a bit more these days and, Uh, try to kind of give instruction by giving example. And I think you could see that in a few of the um, weekly puzzles that I posted Mm -hmm. recently. Uh, So like the wheelchair thing, for example, if I, if I hadn't put the actual wheelchair there, it would have been harder to figure out what to do because you didn't have even one piece Mm. of the, of the puzzle pieces that you were missing. So if you look at something and kind of try to notice some kind of pattern or like one step is already given to you, you can look at it and see, okay, well, why does this step happen like this? Mm. And how can I take the rest of these things and use the same procedure to achieve the result that I want? Like, what is the process that it's trying to describe to me? Um, And you can make those indicators visual as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I I can really resonate with that on the puzzle that you made that was like, was it a dime? No, it, I think it was the octagon. That I think had that all- was a pentagon. There was another pentagon. puzzle with an octagon. 
<laughs> I like shapes. <laughs> <laughs> shapes are cool, man. I've recently transitioned from a triangle to a hexagon. Um, yeah, the one that had the five letters, the different colors, and the the pentagon was all sort of cut up into different shapes. Oh, the shapes so, one was an octagon. Sorry. That was the, yeah, that was the octagon. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the wheelchair. Oh, right. Yeah, no, the, the octagon one. And then at the top, mm-hmm. they were like the, the Tetris type looking thing. Yeah. I, I resonate with what you just said because I looked at that and just saw all different sorts of information and initially was like, what is like, I'm not going to be able to solve this, but I stuck with it. And at some point, and I can't really describe it, I just sort of like it started to make sense, like but very slowly. And then, you know, you test, you've, you have a theory, I guess. Your brain sort mm-hmm. of goes, well, maybe this shape can be found in here and something to do with the color is. And then all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm getting somewhere. And so I can resonate. And I think that that's probably something I struggle with in puzzle design is being able to like, there's no instruction on that one, but if you look at it and just digest it and maybe there's some patience with it, something starts to, you start to understand it. It's not just all random noise anymore. There's like, okay, there's probably some order here somewhere. Where is it? And then it's reaffirmed by you actually get somewhere with it. Um, that's a unique style and it makes me excited to play the Emerald flame, uh, in August next year. Hopefully sooner. Yeah. I think it will be sooner, but you know, it's just who knows with the world right now. Yeah. Right. I didn't Uh, want to make any promises that I can't keep. Yeah, totally. I think it's, and look, it's going to sound so much better when you're like, Hey, I said August, but you could be earlier. Yeah. But having said that, um, we could all be driving around in Mad Max cars soon. So we just don't know. I hope not, but yeah, you're not wrong. Um, so we'll start to wrap it up because we're just about hitting just over an hour. Um, but quickly tell us the game is done. The Kickstarter is, is you're in full swing with the Kickstarter at the moment. Um, we will release this episode while the Kickstarter is still active. Um, so anyone listening now, you can still go and pledge, encourage you to do so. Um, how, what was your process of scale? So obviously you can make one, how do you go about creating a hundred of them? So for this game, I knew that I wanted to make it at a larger scale, uh, which would mean manufacturing it uh, by an actual you know, factory. Um, so I did try to design the components in a way that it would be possible to manufacture at scale. And there are a couple times where I may have miscalculated and they are actually quite difficult to Hmm. manufactured scale but they are going to happen so (laughs) one way or another um the the excellent uh people at panda are helping me figure it out so uh yeah but that was definitely something that i was thinking about in the design as i was making the pieces because a lot of the things in the tale of ward were really handmade and like it wouldn't have been possible to make them in any other way Hmm. um so it was something I was trying to actively avoid. And so with, when you say you're keeping it in mind, what does that mean? Does that mean you're constrained to a four paper or 
do, are you having one company bulk print and then another company sort of like work with a packing company or what, what does that process look um, like? It's, it's all going to be, um, it's all going to be made by one company, but they have different vendors that they might source certain right. components from because they are board game manufacturers. So there are a few components in this game, which are very much not normal board game components. So they'll be sourcing those from other places, but they're going to be assembling everything. Um, cool. In terms of constraints, I just mean like there's nothing that's so, um, you know, insanely labor intensive, like a wooden puzzle box, mm. uh, like in the Tale of Ward, that <laughs> right. I had to assemble myself. So, I mean, if I was going to try to have someone else do that i wouldn't be able to offer the game at a more affordable price which is also one reason why i wanted to get it manufactured is just to be able to bring down the price so that more people would actually be able to play it right and it looks like plenty of them are more to come hopefully um yeah. how much longer at time of we're recording this on this 5th of june um, how much time does Still the, the fourth where I am? But oh, right, that's right. I'm in the future. <laughs> got, I think we've got about twenty twenty one days. Yeah, it's the last days. day is the twenty sixth. So, about three weeks left. Wow. Well, it's going to be an interesting journey to see uh, how high this goes because you're already at like I think last time I saw, which was yesterday, maybe the day before, three hundred percent funded. Yeah, I think we're getting closer to 400 now so it's it's pretty amazing well done um well that must be a validating feeling that your hard work is is paying off um and thank you for coming on to the show uh let's wrap it up tips and tricks for anyone who wants to create a puzzle experience for themselves um can you let's say someone has just decided hey i have a great idea for a story uh i want to turn it into a puzzle narrative where where should they start well, I think one important thing to ask at the very beginning is who you're making this puzzle for, um, who your audience is, because that's going to affect a lot of the decisions that you make along the way, um, including, you know, what sort of things you include in it or how, you know, how you go on making it at all. What kind mm -hmm. of difficulty is it going to be? Um, and basically, like who you want your player to be, how are you going to make a game that that person is going to enjoy? Um, right. the, other, the other things that I would say is try to use your strengths to make a game that only you can make because everybody's got something that they're really good at and you should use those skills and you know, allow them to shine in the things that you're making because um, that's really what's going to make it special. Um, and really just try to make a game that you would want to play because if you think it's fun, then probably other people will too. Yeah. There's 7 billion people on, on the planet. Um, if you like something, then there's going to be at least a thousand people in the world who also like that thing. Um, I think at that's least. all <laughs> at the very least and the thousand people. And if your thing is $10, then that's $10,000. So, um, You've, I know I keep trying to wrap this up, but you keep reminding me of things. Um, I've spoken to some other people, so I've had some other guests on the podcast, Chris being one of them, um, the Society of Curiosities people, uh, Yasina, Michelle, another. 
and that that has come up as well of like it's easy to sort of look at what other people are making and think man that is so cool i wish i could have done that and like they were saying that about your stuff um oh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and at, and the conversation then became a thing of like yeah well we all have these special skills and when we apply what we can do then yeah you, like the idea is oh i want to make something cool like that but want to make something i want to do my own thing like i want to and your the emerald flame is a really good example of what of what your skills are and how you've applied them accurately and so it is a bit of an inspiration to us um to say do what you can do and shine in your own light and you'll be able to create something that no one else can do that stands on its own and that stands sort of like out from everything else out there so thanks for coming on yeah. Rita it's a pleasure to meet you um and yeah, good luck with the Kickstarter. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Fictional Reality. Uh, up next, we will have another guest. That guest is going to go by the name of... Society of Curiosities, I believe. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'm getting a bit mixed up. But... We will have more guests, uh, more puzzle makers, more escape room designers, experienced designers, extraordinarily cool and talented people. Uh, if you enjoyed this and you're interested, please check out, check out the links below, head over to Post Curious, head over to the Kickstarter. Um, as of release of this, um, on if it's on a podcast platform, there's only like two days left. So get in the Kickstarter now. If you're watching it on YouTube, that's probably a little bit longer left. 26th of June is the cutoff there. Otherwise, like and subscribe. Uh, let us know what you think. If you're an experienced designer who wants to be talked to about designing experiences, hit me up or follow me on the old Instagram or Facebook or any of them. I'm on all of them. I even have a TikTok. <laughs> oh, gosh, golly. That's about it for me, everyone. Arriba, don't you?